Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bukaloo. Back this week, Stephanie Barbe Hammer. She is an old friend of mine. She is Professor Emerita at University of California, Riverside. She's also an author with a new book out, Rescue Plan, that's with Bamboo Dart Press. I have not picked this up yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. Stephanie and I will cover Bran's fifth POV chapter. Bran is starting to get a little wolfy. He's a little wolfy. Steve and I cover what might be my second favorite episode. This is The Mountain and the Viper, and I love it so much for Tyrion's dialogue in this episode. So we talk about that. And then for my Bird's Eye View section, I include a little bit more from my conversation with Yannick. Uh, Yannick and I debate whether or not Oberyn ought to be on the warrior slash genius list. Just a couple of housekeeping notes. I apologize for my audio and my conversation with Steve. It sounds in that audio like I'm using a different microphone and I'm in my basement. And that is because that's exactly what happened. So for actually for the next couple episodes with Steve, my audio is less than optimal. And I apologize for that. Finally, this conversation marks the exact midpoint of A Game of Thrones. So this is the exact middle of the book. And I thought it would be a great opportunity next week to simply do a reflection on world building and to talk about a few of the themes that have been established. And I'll be doing that with Carl Nellis. So next week, no specific chapter covered. It'll be more like a midpoint retrospective. And then the week after that, we'll go ahead and pick up again with our chapter by chapter coverage. Without further ado, here is Professor Stephanie Barbe Hammer. Stephanie, welcome back to Electric Bukaloo. Pleasure to be back with you. You were my first guest. You helped me cover the prologue of this book. And I wanted to have you back because this chapter represents the exact midpoint of the book. Does it? I hadn't realized that. But you know what? Now that I look at my copy, you're absolutely right. It's the smack dab middle. Right. So I'm not counting the appendix. But I am counting the prologue, so there's 72 chapters with the prologue, that would make 73. And this is, and I was thinking, well, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the midpoint of the book because chapters are not the same length, right? Right. But it pretty much is. It, it, this, yeah, it totally is. The, the, it's pretty much the exact middle of the book. And um, I don't know. Uh, I, I thought, well, there's, there, there's a nice symmetry to have you at this juncture of the story. That's wonderful. I love that idea. I hadn't realized that there was this perfect symmetry to my visit, but there <laughs> is, and that makes it even more delightful. Yeah, right. Do you think about such things when you're looking at a book or looking at a, uh, you know, a chapter number or thinking, oh, I wanted this to be this length, so I'm about halfway, Do, or, or is that something that just doesn't cross your mind? Oh, I totally think about that. Yes. I totally think about that, particularly because I personally, uh, as a literary magical realist writer, I find the middle difficult. And while you were talking about the middle, I was thinking about John Updike's wonderful, wonderful quote, the middle is where everything happens. <laughs> and and I heard that when I heard that I hadn't written my first novel and I, I muttered a few expletives and went, <laughs> but it's true. The middle is where everything happens and how perfect that Bran, this chapter, is sandwiched between uh -huh. 
a chapter, an important chapter about Daenerys uh-huh. and an important chapter about Tyrion. Yeah. So we have a trio of seemingly weak characters uh-huh. taking action in important and exciting ways. Well, and characters that will become very powerful. I mean, I guess yeah. where we leave off with Tyrion, he's been enslaved, I think. I think that he's not really empowered at that point. Well, yes, but he's yes, he's about to be because yeah. at the end of the next chapter again, which we'll talk about um at length with someone else, Bronn has stepped forward mm-hmm. to do the trial by combat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to do a short synopsis of this chapter. Yes, please. Go for All it. Right, so Bran is horseback and leaving the Winterfell grounds for the first time since his fall. His new saddle has him sitting upright as proud as any knight. The simple plan is to ride out into the summer snows and see if Theon can take down a deer. The party includes Rob, seven other men, and two direwolves. Rob explains Ned's trouble with the Kingslayer and Jory's death. Bran longs for his mother's return and remembers Jory fondly. The brothers ride off into the wolf's wood after summer and grey wind. When Rob rides ahead to gather the wolves, Bran is surrounded by men and women in rags. In an attempt to take his horse, one of them cuts Bran's leg. Rob and the two wolves return, and a bloody fight ensues. The wildlings are no match for the wolves, and soon all but two are dead. The remaining man puts a knife to Bran's throat, only to be shot in the back by Theon, Once the rest of the party returns, they decide to take the last wildling, a tall woman named Asha, back to Winterfell to question her. So, Stephanie, would you like to talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or shall you and I climb the ladder of chaos? Well, the ladder of chaos is very tempting, but I would like to talk briefly first about a theme, and the theme is disability. Oh, good. One of the aspects of these books that I really appreciate is Martin using this kind of phantasmagorical neo-medieval world to talk about an important disabled character, a character who's actually one of the main protagonists, Hmm. and to ask the question, what happens to someone who is disabled in this world? How do they navigate that world? What are their possibilities? What is life like for them? And um, I'm also going to join um, your comment about my visiting you at the beginning of the book, um, because something that I really noticed in this chapter that reminded me so much of the first one we talked about is this ongoing sense of threat and dread in Mm, it. mm -hmm. So there is Bran. He is, again, he's a boy, he's a male heir, and he is, he's going to be one of the Lords of Winterfell because of his privilege, has the assistance and the technology to construct this saddle so that he can go about the world, which he would not be able to do otherwise. Right. And it takes sort of Tyrion's own Status as a or status as a little person. Yeah, yeah. He, it takes it takes the the mind and the ingenuity of someone who's had to navigate a world that doesn't seem to be built for them, right? To come up with this right. design for a saddle, right? Yes, exactly. So you have again, and in disability studies, there's real controversy as to whether to include little people as disabled and lots of pushback against that idea. Mm. But certainly the world is not constructed for little people. So um, Tyrion's and Bran's experience of of the world is analogous in certain ways. So we're seeing great, he's able to go out into the world and ride proudly with his brothers, but Throughout this chapter, there is this sense of of dread that's extremely powerful throughout. And just like the prologue, a border has been transgressed, right? So we've got these, you know, in, in 
in the in the prologue, you've got these men of the Night's Watch who are sort of ranging north into, I, I suppose, enemy territory, and they're not really sure the nature of the enemy. They think the en- enemy is the wildlings or whatever. Right. It's really the right. the White Walkers. Um, yes. In this sense, we have in this case we have Bran and Rob in the party. They are leaving the the safe borders of the Winterfell grounds. Right. Right. They're Indeed. you know they're going into Stark territory. They're, they're yeah. going to to where they ought to have the authority. Right. But then you have these other characters who are down from the wall. And they don't recognize that authority. No. And uh, and oh. you even see sort of this uh, impotent attempt to wield authority in the name of with the name Stark or the name Winterfell. And of course, these yeah. these men and women from the beyond the wall they don't they don't care they don't care. I, they don't recognize those borders. Very. It's a this is a great connection with that first chapter and the idea of boundary transgression. And here are the lords, out, or would be lords, out in on their lands. But they are are they invaded or are they are these just people who say no? We don't recognize these borders. And of course, the wildlings don't. Right. They don't recognize those kinds of boundaries, and the uncertainty the dangerous uncertainty that that creates. I'm again, back to, uh, we've talked a little bit um, elsewhere about Martin's ability to speed in these feelings through uses of the concrete and this incredible description of Bran in the saddle. Um, this is kind of near the beginning with his legs unable to grip the swaying motion of the horse made Bran feel unsteady at first. Yeah. And so there's this constant movement on his part physically during the ride to hang on to the horse and to feel okay because his legs cannot grip. He's just, he's strapped in, but you know, will the straps hold? And of course the question of what to do with the straps comes up a little bit later when the wildlings want to, they say, get off his, get off your horse. And he says, "I, I can't. Right. Oh, there's this passage here that just recalls, I guess we could call it Bran's origin story. He's thinking about the Lannisters. He's thinking about, he kind of likes Tyrion, but he knows that the name Lannister is bad. And then he thinks there was something about the Lannisters, something that he ought to remember. But Mm. then he tried to think what he felt dizzy and his stomach clenched hard as stone. Yeah. So, you know, of course, we know what the character in the story does not know. And you almost get the sense that, I don't know, Brand, maybe Brand's protecting himself from the memory because he knows it's dangerous. Right. Right. Um, Or, again, uh, Martin's genius at at inserting these quite modern concepts into this, this medieval space is... Traumatic memory. Right. Traumatic right. memory is not generally linear or straightforward, right. but it's often physical. Sure. So, so he feels dizzy because he fell and his stomach clenches. So that's a that he feels sick. He feels afraid um, in a way that isn't that's involuntary. And again, Judith Herman, who's written uh, about trauma extensively talks about these sorts of what she calls constriction hmm. and that's a typical traumatic response and so he he exhibits that absolutely mm-hmm. and it's our it is a wonderful way of reminding us what's happened to him and then reminding us that he doesn't remember hmm. consciously hmm. this is such a great chapter to illustrate how good brand has it <laughs> yeah. in life and yeah. how utterly bad yeah. Bran has it in life. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's yeah. like, and I think yeah. that that may be the case. I mean, you could probably name a dozen characters in this novel where that is the case. Where it's like, yeah, they have, they the world is their oyster. They have all of these privileges. And yet yeah. there's this, there's this thing, there's this thing that just won't go away. That's like an obstacle right. for for any kind of happy life. 
Right. And what a wonderful way to remind abled readers of what the experience of being a disabled person in our very ablest society, which we share with Martin, certainly, Mm -hmm. um, is. It's a sense of being continually unstable, unsteady. The world is a dangerous place. And you might be a very privileged disabled person, but there's still all of these other people around. And that confrontation with the wildlings makes that so clear. They're poor, but they're physically powerful Mm -hmm. in a way he is not. Mm -hmm. And, And mobile in a way that he is not. He is literally trapped on that horse. Along those same lines as sort of border transgression, I think that we see in a very clear way Brand's border with his own wolf transgressed in this chapter. There are several hints that he is sensing things that only a wolf would sense. Oh, um, that's very interesting. Like where? I didn't well, see that. Well, the, there's very one... Cool. Yeah, there's one, uh, I'll read this one passage. The smells filled his nostrils, the sharp, fresh tang of pine needles, the earthy odor of wet, rotting leaves, the hints of animal musk, and distant cooking fires. He caught a glimpse of a black squirrel moving through the snow-covered branches of oak and paused to study the silvery web of an empress spider. All right, so I wrote in the margins right here, I mean, are these wolf senses? All right. So yeah, it's, absolutely. But it, it's not it's not super clear. But then later on, when the guy, uh, I guess his name is Shiv, when he has Bran and the the knife is to his throat, it says he could smell the man's fear. Right. And at that point, I was like, right. oh, of course. Of course you can smell his fear because right. you're magic. <laughs> right. Because he's already doing the merge. He's already doing right. the merge. So that's it, fascinating. I had not seen that, Anthony, and you're absolutely right. I'm looking at, at the at the paragraph you just quoted. That's awesome. Man, you know, that Mark that George Martin, he's yeah. quite a good writer. I think he might have a career writing. <laughs> here's here's the second passage. It says, For a moment Stiv was at a loss. His hand trembled. Brand felt a trickle of blood where the knife pressed against his neck. The stench of man filled his nose, and he smelled oh. of fear. So the stench of man—that's that's not yeah. a <laughs> yeah. That's not yeah. something a, a human boy would think. Um, no, it isn't. That's something that's a wolf awesome. would think, right? So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I love how that's just kind of flows in there uh-huh. as nothing special. You know, it flows in there and then we're back to the rest of the story. But that that just kind of comes in mm-hmm. and uh, and feels like an absolutely natural part of the storytelling. It's pretty brilliant. So there's a couple. Yeah. So I noticed a couple borders here. So there's the border of the wall, right? The, the, these ragged people are not supposed to be down from the wall. There's the border of sort of the portocollis was lifted and they're able to leave the border of the castle grounds. Then they transgress the border into the wolf's wood. Right. And then finally, Rob forges this stream. Yeah. So the stream is sort of a natural border. And I was thinking of a lot. I was thinking in general of like in fantasy literature, you have children following animals into a wood. Mm-hmm. And something, you know, they discover something there. Something happens there. Something happens to them. It's kind of what happens in this chapter. Absolutely. Well, we see Bran beginning to, I guess, incorporate his his wolfiness, I yeah. guess. Yeah, yeah. And we see you know, Asha, Asha arrives. We hear the bad news from King's Landing. So we have a sense that, uh-oh, things are about to things are about to change. Dad has been wounded and is kind of semi out of commission. We don't know what that means. So that border has been breached. Mm -hmm. Uh, Eddard as the defense for the family, mm, he's down, he's down and out. He's not dead. And Rob's right on the border of, he can smell being Lord of the Winterfell, right? (laughs) Yes, he can. Yes, absolutely. And Theon can kind of smell what that would mean for him. Like if my best friend 
who looks up to me, becomes lord of the castle. I think Theon is feeling opportunistic. The text doesn't really lead in that direction. But I do get the sense that, uh, you know, at one point, Bran notices that Theon is always smiling as if he knows something that no one else knows. Yes. Such an unattractive view of the of Theon uh-huh, uh-huh. in this chapter. He's uh-huh. this sort of smirking. Uh, I'm thinking you're too young to know the Leave It to Beaver television show, but he's a bit the Eddie Haskell. Of this oh yeah, group. yeah, no, I I know Eddie Haskell. No, you look lovely, <laughs> Mrs. Cleaver, and it's like, uh huh, okay. And Theon has a bit of that. He's a bit yeah. of a. Um, of an S eating, you know, jerk, um, you know, but who's, who's a great marksman, but who's completely irresponsible about how he shoots as Rob points out to him. Yeah. Yeah. He does, you know, brand kind of notes that he, he just thinks everything's a joke. Yeah. And I think I'm reading Theon differently than I, in this reading than I have in years past. I think I had uh-huh. kind of a brand view of Theon from the start. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think on this read, I'm thinking, you know what? This guy's cynicism is well-earned, you know? Yeah. This guy's father is basically a defeated uh, mm-hmm. liege lord who sends his youngest son off. You know, he has no contact with his people He's a person in between. Like he's never he's never really gonna be a Stark and he's never really gonna be a Greyjoy again. Not in the way that he would if he stayed. I think that smirk is sort of a defense mechanism for him. Absolutely, yes. And we we have spoken elsewhere about um courtly manners right. and courtly behavior. Sure. Um, and I sure. mentioned a book called The Book of the Courtier, which is by Castiglione, an t- Italian author. And it's a Renaissance work, but it's looking back at the Middle Ages. And you have to be pleasant when you're a courtier. You have to be agreeable. So the smile is cynical, but it's also you got to keep smiling. Right. You got to right. keep smiling because you're a, you're a darned hostage here. Right. That's which right. he is. He's a, he's a fancily treated hostage, but if something uh-huh. goes wrong, they're killing him. So, so that's interesting because... Well, smile, Theon, smile. Right, right. At the end of this chapter, Asha does the same thing. You know, she is, you know, she's as involved as any of these other aggressors. But as soon as she sees that she's defeated, she kneels, she says, my lord... You know, she says, if it please you, I'll be in your service. You know, all that business. She immediately snaps back into this courtly. Yeah. And she's a head taller than Rob, we're told. She's much taller, but it doesn't matter because he's got the wolves and the swords and she's beat and she gets it and she immediately kneels Uh and does her milord thing and don't kill me and I'll serve, you know, I am yours. I'll serve you, whatever. She knows the power dynamics. Yeah, which is interesting to me. Like, I mean, you think north of the wall, how much do they know about these customs? I mean, clearly she knows enough, you know. Yes. She she knows enough. She's She's heard stories or she's been down south enough to know that if you want to survive in this situation, you've got to start malording. Yep. You better yep. lay it on thick. Yep. yep. And we've talked elsewhere about uh, Martin's talent for giving us wonderful female characters. Mm-hmm. And here's another one. Sure. She's a fantastic character. And oh, is she smart. She's smart, super smart. smart. She notices things that other people are not. So, so, for instance, there's another woman named Hallie. Yes. I don't really know how to pronounce that name. It's H A L I. Yeah, we'll Hallie. guess it's Molly. Yeah. You know, she says, get off the horse. Um, and Bran says, I, I, I can't. And then it's Asha who uh, observes, you know what? He's probably telling the truth. He looks like he's strapped to the horse. Yeah. So even though they've yeah. never seen a saddle like this before, Asha kind of observes that. The other thing that she does is Shiv tells her, kill the wolves. And she's like, I'm I'm not getting anywhere near those wolves. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She's a very observant about what's happening and what the consequences would be. And even when she's in power or, and she hasn't been defeated yet, she's figuring out how to handle dealing with Bran 
as a hostage and says, no, 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 don't kill him. That's stupid. Yeah, right. You know that, but he's a hostage and this is what we need to do. So she's really, really an intelligent person who's looking ahead to different options. Uh-huh. She becomes quite an important character for yes. brand survival. Yes, she does. And here she is being introduced at the midpoint of the book. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you as an author, let's say you're like deep into a project and you're debating on whether or not to introduce a new character that will require a backstory, an introduction, a climax, a satisfying ending, you know, and all the things that are going to go along with this character's story arc. Will you feel reluctant, you know, deep into a project to introduce someone new like that? That's a wonderful question. And I actually had a situation like this with this, with my novel, new novel that's coming out in the spring of 2022, Pretend Plumber. Very funny, magical realism, a dysfunctional Jewish family in Los Angeles. Um, I got about halfway through the project and I realized, again, back to Updike, that I needed something more to happen. Oh. And so I did introduce a new character. Uh, And during the process of revision, I'm not writing a series like Martin is. My book, I write quite short. My novels tend to be short novels. Uh, He had a huge backstory at one point, Uh which I, um, working with the press and working with some beta readers, um, decided to cut enormously because it took away from the main Mm. Plot. And that's always the problem with intro- with bringing in new characters in the middle is you don't want to have your reader forget about the main action. And again, this is one of the amazing things about Martin is he's got 16 million people <laughs> on stage right. and 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 the and one million of them are main characters. So somehow you have to be able to keep everybody straight. And he helps us do that. He's very good at that. Um, one of I want to come back to Theon. One of the things he does do, which of course we see in epics like the Iliad, is he gives characters certain physical characteristics that are markers, so we'll remember them. Hmm. You know, Theon and the smile. So right. it's like, oh right, Theon and the smile. He's that guy. Um, right. You know, Bran. Bran, who who is disabled and who also has these these abilities of smell and sight. Okay, right, Bran. We know who that is. Uh, Asha is tall and talks in a very particular way. Okay, it's the tall wildling woman. Right. I'll remember her. He's great at doing that. Sure. She's tall. She's kind of gaunt. Yeah. She and she fights with a spear. I mean, it's it's like, Oh. oh, I see that right away. Yeah. And her eyes are moving everywhere. She's looking at this. She's looking at that. She's on the on the alert Uh always as well. One should be in this world. But she's very aware of kind of where people are and what they're doing. The other thing about introducing Asha at this point is that I don't know how many characters we actually have met who are commoners. Oh, that's a good point, Anthony. I mean, we even have a... even people yeah. like Theon, who's a you know hostage, or someone like Bran, who is disabled, they're in a one down position. But all right. of these people are high of high social yeah. station. They're members of the elite. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a great point. And the poor you know butcher boy, He's uh, dead. <laughs> who you know Arya yeah. chose as her playmate is is he didn't last long. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Two chapters, maybe at most. Um, Yeah, I think that's a great point. And she's not only low class, she's outside. She's beyond the pale. Yeah. She's one of the wildlings. Yeah. So it's kind of worse. Yeah, she has absolutely no social standing at all. She doesn't even. She doesn't even deserve to live in the same space as as, you know the people of Westeros. So. Right, exactly. She's, I'm thinking, I'm currently reading Isabel Wilkerson's book called Cast. And she's, uh, I mean, the wildlings, what are they? Are they untouchables? I'm not sure they're that, but they're they're absolutely beyond the pale. They're yeah. almost not considered human. That's right. 
Yeah. By Westeros. Yeah, they're so monstrous. Like, oh, so the stories that are told yeah. about them, that you know, stealing right. babies in the night, things right. like that. Right. So what an introduction of someone who does not belong to the elite world of right. the elite world. Martin doesn't fool around. He brings us somebody who's really beyond, beyond, beyond the acceptable and who was also female. Yeah. So I'm thinking about the other characters. There's not a lot, but, you know, a few people that John meets at the Night's Watch, like Pip and Gren. Right. They would be so-called lowborn. We'll eventually yeah. meet Shay. Right. We're not really sure what her backstory is. but No, we aren't, are we? Yeah, yeah. We're not yeah, sure. Yeah. We're not and sure. And then eventually we'll meet Penny. You know, Penny is another little person. Yes who uh, Tyrion falls in with and, and Tyrion almost sort of loathes her for the choices yeah, she she's does. made in her life. Right. An interesting sort of projection of yeah. self-hatred right, and right, it's right. quite complicated and uncomfortable. Right. I mean, I think it's an interesting read, but it's an uncomfortable reading experience, right. I think in so, a good way. Yeah. So Asha, uh, Asha is significant. She's significant for a number of reasons um, because she really does sort of foreshadow Bran's journey north. Yes. She's going to become caretaker for him. Yes, absolutely. Um, but then at the same time, she also represents this outsider perspective. She's not Westerosi. She's, you know, she's not highborn. Yeah. And as a result, below has a sort of different set of mythoi mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. operating. She, you know, she says certain things when Bran will say, well, what does this mean? She'll offer this explanation that's right. kind of mythical, but that is nothing we've heard before. Right. Sounds like it's coming from a completely different place. So it's a wonderful alternate magical view mm -hmm. of the world. Mm -hmm. The other thing that strikes me about Asha, I really appreciate being able to talk about her because she's a wonderful character, is that I think it's Northrop Fry who in his discussion of, you know, there are four different kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. And he talks about the importance of the wise man or wise woman. We, we've been talking about Tolkien, so of right. course Gandalf. But Asha is in some ways that, that wise woman who has a kind of a wisdom, you know, old man doesn't have it. But she does because she has a kind of insight into the the order of things or the disorder of things right. that um, that no one else has. Well, and we were talking about borders, right? So we're so Bran is on this border of sort of nobility and being completely feral, right? So yes, he's on a journey that's leading him into the wild, right? And who right. better as a guide? Than a wildling, Perfect. right? Perfect. Absolutely. Well, who better to lead him into that and to in, into his wolfish nature yeah. than Asha? That's a great point. I love that. So it, notable introductions in this chapter. We meet Bran's horse dancer. Yes. Uh, they walk past a pub called the Smoking Log. I love I love these details. Um, yeah. And uh, I guess one of Theon's girlfriends, sweet Kira. Yes. Um, yes. So you, you're kind of getting the, the sense that Theon is, you know, he's he's making the rounds. <laughs> so yeah, speak, he's a so. player or wants to be. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, uh, the descriptions of the direwolves. This is the first time I think that they're described as in detail as they are. And I want to read oh, the description yeah. because I think that a lot of readers still have the show depiction in their head when they read. Mm -hmm. Let me see here. Go for it. Here's the passage. Direwolves, Bran said, still half grown. They were as large as any wolf he had ever seen, but the differences were easy to spot. If you knew what to look for, Maester Lewin and Farlin, the kennel master had taught him a dire wolf had a bigger head and longer legs in proportion to its body and its snout and jaws were markedly leaner and more pronounced. There was something gaunt and terrible about them as they stood there amid the gently falling snow. Fresh blood spotted Grey Wind's muzzle. Yeah, now there's a description of a wild animal. <laughs> right. I, that's, that, you know, speaking of wildlings. Yeah. You know, there's the you know, there's the there's the original wildling, mm -hmm. the, the 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 being that is all animal nature. Yeah. 
you know, uh, complete with blood. And then the only uh, show difference that I thought was notable here is that I thought it was interesting that Theon has black hair and Rob has auburn hair. And they're, the actors, for some reason, are, are, are sort of switched. Yes, it's the opposite it's, in the, it's and just the TV the show. How funny. Yeah, How yeah. funny that is. Huh. Strange. Yeah. It's really not anything to criticize. I think both of those actors are amazing. I think so, too. Um, yeah, but you do get good. the sense that, you know, Rob is supposed to favor the Tully side. Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed to someone like Jon Snow, who looks even more like a Stark. And this is, in some ways, a discomfortable fact for, like, Catelyn. Yeah. I absolutely love reading this alongside you. I think one of the great joys of this project is to bring on other astute readers uh, that see things that I don't. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, you bet. Thank you so much. I felt like I learned a lot from this conversation and I'm really appreciating the development in this chapter in a way that I hadn't before. So thank you so much, Anthony. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Here are the highlights coming up this week on Bald Move. All new Pulp and Prestige this week. On Tuesday, we'll cover the latest episode of The Walking Dead, The Ones Who Live on Pulp. And on Thursday, we'll catch up with the latest Samurai subterfuge on FX Hulu's Shogun. Then on our House of the Dragon feed, Anthony puts on his Maester's class on Monday. And then on Thursday, Steve joins him for Electric Bookaloo as they continue their discussion of George R. R. Martin's A Clash of Kings. Find these and many of our other great podcasts by searching for Bald Move Pulp or Prestige in your favorite podcast app. And now Steve and I cover The Mountain and the Viper. This is absolutely one of my favorite episodes of the entire series, and I think it it might contain my favorite scene with Tyrion, where he's in the jail cell and he's talking about Cousin Orson. I I just love the scene. I think it may be the best single Tyrion episode. But of course, it is the Oberyn and Mountain element that's going to dominate this conversation. Without further ado, here is comic Steve Osborne. Steve, have you ever had your head popped? Uh, no. Uh, when I was, I think, about four or five... I climbed up a slide, not through the ladder, but through the slide itself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. at, I, at Ives Park and got right up to the very top and slipped and fell right on my head. And, you know, my memory is that my entire head was like uh, open and exposed. I know that wasn't the case, uh, but it was pretty bad. Like a lot of skin gone on my forehead. Yeah. Like, and my parents being the, um, the diligent, caring folk that they are, my mom's like, oh, you okay? And I was like, oh, I'm really dizzy. I can't really see very well. And she says, oh, okay, you're fine. No concussion protocol. No concussion protocol. Uh, they just put me back. They st- <laughs> they just taped it up and put me back out on the field. Yeah. And then later later that evening, I went to neighbor's house and it was all dark. And I went and knocked on the door and I went to lean against the side of the like the porch area. Uh, depth perception was off and it was dark and I missed the uh, the wall to lean on by about a good two and a half, three feet, mm. and then landed hand first right into their cactuses. <laughs> that they had so uh when they opened the door there's this little five-year-old uh with a just a bloody head and a cactus plant just hanging well just stuck into mm-hmm. his hand mm-hmm. screaming and wailing it was uh it was a good night so good night. head injury followed by uh impaling yeah yeah now so speaking of head popping and impaling yeah the you, mountain you had a little bit of both you, you, yeah you, the mountain was impaled and I think they were supposed to think to death, but yeah, it didn't, it didn't injure him so much that he couldn't pop some dude's head. Yeah, and here's the thing. I mean, like, I made the prediction. I predicted that the Viper would win, and I was uh, I was real close. 
was real close. Yeah, um, he he should have won. I mean, he was he was kind of like the fumble had, on the first yard line, right? Yeah, this is when you're high stepping into the end zone and and you lose your footing. I mean, I understand what he was going for, but I mean, I think your point was made. You know, I think he wanted to have an excuse to kill Tywin. Sure, and that's what he was really after. But I mean, let's let's follow that logic, right? Um, mm-hmm. If the mountain says in his dying breath, right? Yes, you're right. I did this, and I did it at the orders of Tywin. What's that going to do then? I mean, are they going to have a trial with your number one witness dead? <laughs> you know, I mean, like, what are you going to do? Who's going to facilitate this? Um, well, I was just thinking that in that moment, in all of his adrenaline fueled rage. He would just chuck his spear right up at Tywin. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I don't uh, feel like he needed that. You know what I mean? Like, if you've already gone that far, killing the mountain says a lot, too, right? It says a lot, too. Like, just so you guys know, I mean... He did the Caffrey at the end of A Few Good Men, where he's trying to get Colonel Jessup to yell out that he did indeed order the code red. Right. That's a lot, man. You have to have a lot riding on that strategy. Yeah, you could also do that maybe not within arm's length of the mountain. <laughs> and that was the that was the difference. You you could just sort of Tom Cruise got nowhere near yeah. Jack Nicholson. <laughs> right. And to be, and if you follow the narrative, your comparison is very apt because uh, once uh, Colonel just a uh, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't watched a few good men, you might want to stop listening for a few seconds or so. But when he he confesses and then they start charging him with the crime, what I'm being charged with the crime. This is a joke. This is funny. And then he goes, I'm going to rip out your eyes and piss in your dead skull, which is exactly what happens. Well, not the pissing part. But yeah, but there you go. Right. I mean, it was eyeballs. So there is a... He did, in fact... He, like, punctured them in, or... Yeah, he popped them, and then just <laughs> kept on going. I mean... Yeah, and they... Yeah. We talk about... we Now, we saw Joffrey's face. We've talked a lot about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. This was a crushed half of a skull? It was... Yeah. You're not supposed to... Mandalorian, don't take off the helmet, man. This is because what happens. This is exactly why this, you don't take off the helmet. This is the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so interesting you brought up Joffrey. I, I asked Heather, I said, is this the most gruesome death we've seen? And she says, I don't know. Joffrey's death was pretty hideous. And I'm like, well, that's different. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, neither one is the one you want to look at. But like, this seems like the most gruesome death, whereas his was just the most, just, just his face went out, out facing itself. <laughs> I think the Viper in the Mountain may be in my top two episodes of all time. Is that right? Yeah. And it all has to do with Tyrion in the jail cell. Oh, man. That scene's incredible. That is, and now props to the showrunners here. That scene is not in the books. And the dialogue in that scene is just unparalleled. I think it it may, I mean, there's, there's a lot to like in this episode. But the whole thing, well, all right, I'm going to monologue for a little bit here, all right? Mm-hmm. The scene starts with Tyrion thanking Jamie for the wine. And then he says something about trial by combat, you know, deciding the gods' will by two men hacking themselves to death. And he says, it tells you something about the gods. So there's this subtle theological commentary. This whole tradition is uh, barbaric. Mm-hmm. And then they just quickly slip right into this discussion of Cousin Orson. Yeah. Okay, so Orson is... Yes, that's right. Cousin Orson is killing a lower life form. And in a way that is just totally inscrutable. Cousin Orson is a higher life form killing a lower life form with seemingly no purpose. And I think this is a commentary on the gods. Mm. In addition to that rhythmic kung, 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 then at the end of it, you hear the church bells ringing, gong, gong, gong. Mm. And so I just think that that scene is just crafted really well as this meta commentary on 
look, the gods actually are in control of the fates of these people, but they're not intelligent. They're just like mindless cousin Orsons up there, just killing these beetles for no reason. And the more we try to reason or 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 deduce their their yeah. logic, the more folly it becomes. That's right. Trying to deduce the logic of the gods is as futile as trying to deduce the logic of Cousin Orson. Well, yeah. And in, in addition to that, trying to deduce the logic of the gods is as futile as trying to avoid their destructive tendencies. Yeah. This is what you get. You are yeah. subject to their whims. That's right. And of course, Jamie's thinking, who cares? Like, who, right. who cares about beetles? But this is the kind of thing that preoccupies Tyrion. It's the kind of thing he can't get out of his head. And it's especially true now that he kind of feels like a beetle in this situation. He, he's about to get crushed by the gods, and there's really nothing he can do about it. So I love that scene. I love the way it's framed. I think it's it has a, a clear thread. Totally not in the books at all. There's no C- cousin Orson in the books. It could be my favorite of the uh, of the whole show. I love it. It's great. It is really real good. I love person. it a lot. I love it a lot, and I love when uh, Tyrion gets to the <laughs> chosen battleground or whatever. Oberyn's just just drinking wine. I know, and he's just the whole. He's like he. <laughs> He's trying Isn't... to be the Mickey to his Rocky, and he's just not having right. it. That's right. This character has been drinking wine every other scene from the beginning of the show. Yeah. And now he's counseling someone on, on not drinking wine. And of course, uh, and Oberyn's not, you know, he's not going to wear armor. And then immediately Oberyn goes into this sort of Darth Maul acrobatic routine. Oh, yeah. And it's really impressive. And you start to get the sense of, Okay, this could go either way here now because this could be like a Indiana Jones thing where he just yeah one one slice and he's done. Well, that's the thing is like so the more he starts doing that, the more I'm thinking like oh, okay, he's gonna lose. But then then and I give a lot of credit to the director in this case is that you feel duped I think several times. Yeah, it goes back and forth. Yeah, and so then so enough times that it disarms you. To the point where you're like, yeah, you're being real cocky, but like also you were already being really cocky and that worked out. Like maybe he's just, this is Steven Seagal against Henchman. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm all, cause I could see that too, where it's just like, nope, he's just that badass, And this is what this character can do. Well, the um, other thing is that, I mean, it's done a lot this season to build up that character make it really make that characters really interesting. They don't care about building up the mountains character. They exactly. don't care if it's a number of actors his lines right. are horribly stilted. They give him as le- the least amount of dialogue as possible. And the most impact he has is through like um, backwards narratives. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's right. Backwards narratives. That's right. And in addition to that, I, Henchman is a great way to frame this because if this was a normal movie, the mountain is just the kind of guy that you would defeat on your way to getting the big boss, which would be Tywin, right. which is what he really wants. And uh, and he gets this close. He just gets this close. If he was just wearing his helmet, man. Now, interesting thing, right? So he admits to doing all of the stuff as he's popping his head, but he doesn't admit to, that he did it under Tywin's orders, right? And I'm just curious, like, what would have happened had he done that? Let's say his final breath is that he did do it. Like, is there any recourse that can happen? I mean, does it matter? Who would do anything? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, okay, first of all, like we've already noted, <laughs> you're, you're quite the gambler to think that he's going to confess right there right in front of everyone. All right. Uh, if he did confess, I think it's equally plausible that he would say, yeah, I did it, and I did it just for fun. Yeah. You know? It's like, are, are you sure? Are you sure that Tywin hasn't insulated himself and, like, with a wink and a nod, say, and by the way, it'd be... It'd be kind of nice if there were no offspring to worry about without actually commanding him. I mean, Tywin's not going to get in his own way in that way. Right. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of an odd strategy. But he, I guess at that point he's thinking, you're dying. I can see that you're dying. 
I know that you're dying because I just stabbed you. <laughs> right. And what do I have to lose by just trying to get you to, in a moment of vulnerability, right before you died, give me more information? Right. So, that, wouldn't, wouldn't it have been more beneficial to keep like stabbing at him and just say, hey, I'm going to keep on doing this until you know I'll, I'll let you die swiftly or something you know so that way you're also like making sure that the option of getting your head popped just becomes less and less uh, a reality <laughs> right before he gets his head popped he gets his chiclets oh right man he sure does that was almost as gross as anything else yeah the single punch in the mouth just and and the sound of like 14 teeth on the Just, stone yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 very well uh edited yeah so i'm assuming that that was came as something of a shock uh, yeah that was the yeah I mean, as it was for most people it was just hard to do i mean it's it because you feel like you're kind of braced for anything right at, at this point you kind of feel like yeah but um it would make sense that Tyrion would not get sentenced to death and that this would because this would be the complication, right? This would be mm-hmm. another, and that's that's what we've been talking about, is it's another Tyrion to Tywin complication. He may never defeat Tywin, but he will always complicate him. And this was setting up for that, right? Because then now what do you do? If Oberyn wins, you know, and now you, you, you potentially get this confession, you now have Tywin who might think that his life is in danger because of Oberyn. Uh, there's a different perception change on Tywin now Tyrion lives but mm-hmm. he lives he lives in King's Landing after telling everybody he wished they would have all died and like it goes on all that stuff right and he even says I wish I would have killed the king and there's this whole like everything's complicated now but now it's like well okay it's it's not <laughs> I mean I mean it's complicated for Tyrion for sure but like anyway it's just it's a lot it was a lot to take in and it was uh yeah it's it's um in addition to caring about Oberyn more than you do about the mountain and thinking that his cause is more righteous, it's not just him hanging in the balance. It's, it's Tyrion hanging in the balance. Yeah. Steve, if ever we were uncertain that brothels are gross. <laughs> yeah. Was a... This brothel, I mean, this brothel at Moltown may be the grossest brothel in the history of brothels. Yeah, it's pretty... Uh... It's, it's, I don't know if I've never seen a stickier scene. It's, yes, gosh, it, it was just, the whole thing was gross. And then the, the blood seeping through the slats in the ceiling. Yeah. That was pretty gross. There, no one's brushing their teeth up at Molestown, man. No. And there's just got to be teeth like everywhere, like rotten teeth, They're just on the ground. Yeah. Imagine the toenails in that joint. They got to be curling underneath. Yeah. Yellow with fungus. Oh boy, yeah. Moltown, yeah, Moltown. You know, I don't want to see people die, Steve. I don't no. want to see fens eat anyone. No, no. I, I, but I almost feel bad for the fens. They've got to eat those Moltown people. Yeah, could you imagine? I mean, you must really like to eat people that you would eat any kind of people. <laughs> I mean, I guess I think the closest thing I could probably compare it to is like chicken nuggets. Like if we went to if we went to a fast food place and you're like, yeah, they got nuggets. These are probably the worst nuggets I've ever had. I'd be like, yeah, five for a buck. Let's see what happens. <laughs> Rick, how you doing, buddy? You, you don't know what it's like out there. Hey, man, do, do you even know what it's like out there? No, not really. I've been mostly kind of flying around in helicopters, carving likenesses of Michonne into cell phones, that kind of thing. What is it like out there? Oh, well, I think it's time to find out, man. Last I saw your wife, Michonne, was out uh, following a giant wagon train. That that sounds pretty weird, but it seems like a family-friendly outfit. I mean, she's got RJ and Judah with her, right? Um, actually, she kind of left him to be raised by... Negan and Daryl. Well, crap. Hold on, let me get my boots. All right, well, Rick is getting ready. Aaron and I are too. We're preparing to once again recommission The Watching Dead out of mothball status to find out what's going on with Rick and Michonne, the ones who live. 
The six-part miniseries premieres Sunday, February 25th on AMC, and we'll be ready with our full episodic coverage each Tuesday. And afterwards, who knows? Maybe we'll check out Dead City. Find our coverage for The Ones Who Live by searching for The Watching Dead or Bald Move Pulp wherever you listen to podcasts. FX is adapting James Clavell's best-selling novel, Shogun, into a 10-part miniseries this spring. Set in the shogunate period of Japan at the turn of the 15th century, Shogun depicts the rise of a feudal lord to Shogun, as seen through the eyes of a shipwrecked English sailor. It's loosely based on the real-life exploits of William Adams and Tokugawa Ieyasu. Shogun has already been successfully adapted back in 1980 with a widely acclaimed miniseries starring Richard Chamberlain featuring intricate plots, political scheming, complex characters, and thrilling action. This time, husband and wife team Justin Marks and Rachel Kondo try to recapture the successes of the novel and early adaptations while increasing the levels of historical and cultural accuracy that are often perceived as flaws of this and similar works. Starring Hiroyuki Sanada from The Last Samurai, Mortal Kombat, and John Wick 4, with Cosmo Jarvis of Peaky Blinders, Raised by Wolves, etc., joining the truly massive cast required to bring this complex world to life. Join Aaron and I each week as we deep dive into each episode, uncovering the mysteries, the intrigue, and the glory of Shogun. Shogun premieres on FX Hulu Tuesday, February 27th at the two-part debut. Our podcast will release each Thursday thereafter. Get our Shogun coverage by searching for Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. And now, all the way from Belgium, here is my friend, Yannick. Yannick, you also had a suggestion for our top badass list and yes. interweaving that with the top strategic genius list. Mm-hmm. So I found it interesting that on all the, the lists that were mentioned, actually nobody from yeah. Dorn was mentioned. Maybe because you're uh-huh. in the beginning of the book still, so it's not... Or maybe because people hate Dorn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because of this because of the show, exactly. Um, yeah, everyone's sick of Dorn. Everyone is sick of Dorn. Uh, but I, I thought you have a right. especially a guy like Oberon Martel, who was clearly a match for the mountain, uh, could potentially uh-huh. win if he did not have alternative motives. Uh, for sure can be a list for the badass. And I might. Yeah, no, I agree with the, I agree with you on the badass thing. If he if he gets that close to winning single combat with the mountain, he he should be on the badass yeah. list. Yeah, and then additionally, I think from his background and what he shows, I also think he's he could be potentially on the strategic list, or he's getting at least, for in my opinion, the closest to being on both lists. Now here's where I think we're gonna disagree. Yeah. yeah. So you give me your argument four and i'll try to take the other position that's fine so i'm assuming we're we're in agreement the badass list he makes in fighter style i think he ought to be on the i don't know if he's top 10 he's probably top 15 but anyone who can defeat the mountain should be on exactly exactly um so i mean there's a couple of easy arguments to give about oberon right he's got six uh maesters chain link uh six maester links so for sure he's not Uh stupid in that sense uh not everybody's able to get chains uh, from the Maesters. Yeah, he's, he's a smart guy. Smart guy, smart taught guy. him potions. Um, he's got also leading experience. For example, he started his own uh, sellsword company. We don't know how well it did, but Oberyn's still alive, so uh-huh. can't have done too bad. Mm-hmm. And Entrepreneur. Entrepreneurial. Yeah. And I think that from how you see his conversation with Tyrion going, you can see that he's playing the Game of Thrones in a certain sense. Uh, I can give you a couple examples. Um, for instance, in the beginning, when Oberyn arrives to King's Landing, he meets Tyrion on, the, on some grass plain somewhere. And he mm-hmm. tells him this story about how people told Tyrion was a monster. According to Oberyn and uh, his sister Elia, he was not a monster. He was just a, a cute baby. And that... Actually, Cersei was the one who already hated him at that time. So here's a little beginning uh-huh. of... He's trying to get on Tyrion's good side while he's trying to create a rift between Tyrion and his sister. Doing this a little bit more. Um, 
Interesting. Yeah, no, that's interesting. The second point I want to make is that after Joffrey dies, Oberyn already comes with his plan. And he says, hey, now that Joffrey's dead, we might be able to queen Marcella. And Tyrion says, yeah, but how are you going to queen Marcella? Because there's still Tommen. And then Oberyn says, well, you know, if we could convince Cersei to crown Marcella, maybe we'd have a case here. And knowing that Cersei is for that woman empowerment and Cersei is a bit angry that she was uh-huh. seen yeah. over the throne. I saw him playing this game a little bit. That is Yeah, I think you're right about that. Now, all right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and, and push back a yep, little bit. Bring it on. Okay, here we go. First off, he dropped out. He couldn't complete the Maester's training. He doesn't get credit for not getting all of the chains. He got a few chains, yeah. and that was, you know, he, he couldn't he couldn't hack it in Old well, Town. That, that's, he, my, that's my... States he got that's bored, my right? Back. He got bored. <laughs> Maybe so. Yeah. All right. So he doesn't get credit for, for getting a few links on the chain. Uh, that's what mm-hmm, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's certainly smart, but he doesn't he didn't see it through. I mean, you could also argue that he, you know, he didn't he didn't see through a lot of these things because of his early departure from the narrative mm-hmm. because he wasn't as good as he could have been. Yep. So if he was really good, maybe he doesn't try to maybe his strategy isn't like in the end I'm going to get the mountain to confess. Yep. The mountain doesn't talk to anyone anyway. <laughs> So I don't think I don't think it was a good strategy. I I do think it would have been really interesting if he could have gotten Marcel on the throne, but he failed in that too. Mm-hmm. So I think he's I I think you're right in that he's playing the tr- the Game of Thrones, yep. and he's an interesting character. And I would have liked to see him survive to see where that would have gone. But ultimately, he just wasn't good enough to survive. Yeah, it's very true. I I think. Maybe his problems were also that he's got this fire in him that I think that he he might be smart enough, but he, he wants to make decisions quick. Things need to get moving. And you yeah, can see yeah, he's yeah. very emotionally driven. He, he loves his children, and he's all right. of this is for his sister. I think in this way, he's very similar to Rob in that he's really driven by vengeance. Mm-hmm. And when you're driven by vengeance... I think that there's going to be something you sacrifice in terms of just cold calculating strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a good question. Like, I wonder if it would be like you're, you mentioned in your email that he, you know, he sits on the small council for a while. He was invited to. Yeah. I think that would have been a good, I think that would have been a great spot for him, yep. you know, because he's not the one that's making all of the decisions in the end, but he provides some really interesting insight from a different perspective. That's definitely, um, I think he'd be a great person to have on a small council. I don't think that he's like hand of the King potential. I think that's my, maybe thing. when he and his brother Doran made this plan, probably his brother Doran said, Hey, we're going to sit on that small council and we're going to take it nice and slow. But Oberyn being Oberyn said, ah, it's not moving fast mm-hmm. enough. Things got to get moving. Mm, yeah, he's a hot. He's head. a hothead. That's that's for sure. The Spanish characteristic, maybe. <laughs> maybe I do so. want to say, as I was reading the little bit parts back, I also thought yeah. saw little bits of emotional intelligence. I saw him that I thought was very, very. Oh, nice. absolutely. He's 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 really interesting in that regard. Yeah. He's very much, at least in comparison to the other people we meet in this world. He seems fairly enlightened mm-hmm. in a number of topics. Yeah, agreed. Um, anyway, well, sorry, I'll let you finish. What yeah, you so say? Some, some small topics. I thought that this shows that he is not just a hothead, but he's also can mm-hmm. be calm. Is that uh, they talk about that he uh, crippled Willis Tyrell and is creating this feud. But he's actually he actually said that he sent a maester to look after him and they have letters to each other. So that they actually have a decent mm. connection. So it shows that he doesn't break these connections off. He he pays respects where due. Um, also, an interesting comment he made is he said that he saw that Loras was Renly's little rose. And I thought it was interesting because it almost indicated yeah. that he knew about this relationship. Um, mm, mm. But it's like... Or maybe he just 
maybe he just intuited it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in either case, it's impressive that he sees things that other people don't see. Exactly. And he was able to call yeah. Joffrey basically crazy at his opening wedding party while Joffrey was in the room. And I thought that definitely deserves some credit. <laughs> hey, man. Uh, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate this. No problem. My thanks again to Yannick for a stimulating conversation. Again, a word about next week, we will be doing a retrospective on the first half of the book, and then in a fortnight, we will pick up with our usual chapter-by-chapter coverage, so you can look forward to that. And that is all for this week. <laughs>